Parashat Todot, as the name suggests, shows us the transition of the Hebrew mission from generation to generation. The major focus of this week's parsha is on Yitzchak, preserving his father Avraham's teachings and passing them on to his twin sons Esav and Yaakov. Bereshit chapter 28 verse 20 informs us that Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka as his wife. But in doing so, the verse refers to her Aramean identity three times, in naming the place of her birth and as a defining characteristic for both her father and brother, indicating that this is something important for us to understand about Rivka. The Arameans were an important Semitic civilization, descendants of Shem ben Noach, who had spread out across Mesopotamia. It's noteworthy that their language, Aramaic, ultimately became the universal language of communication for the region, until the Muslim conquest of the Levant. Avraham's brother Nahor was an ethnic Hebrew, descending from Ever, a different branch of Shem's offspring. Nahor had set up shop in the bustling Aramean city of Haran and attempted to influence the society around him with Hebrew teachings. But the fact that his son Betuel and grandson Levan are explicitly referred to in the Torah as Arameans, despite being ethnic Hebrews, shows the extent to which the family had assimilated into Aramean identity, which at that time had been humanity's leading universal cosmopolitan identity. We mentioned earlier that in keeping with our ancient teaching that Ma'aseh Avot Siman Lebanim, the deeds of the fathers are a sign for the children, the story of Terach's family just prior to the formation of the nation of Israel mirror the major events that befell the Jewish people in the 20th century. Terach had three sons, Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran, one-third, was killed in an oven in Orkazdim. Terach then attempted to bring the family back to their homeland, the land of the Hebrews, but only reached the Aramean city of Haran. His surviving sons, both dedicated to the teachings and mission of Ever, differed on what direction the family should take. Avram, a traveling revolutionary preacher, received prophetic instruction to continue on to the land of the Hebrews and to create there a unique holy nation that would ultimately influence all human society. But Nahor, Rivka's grandfather, preferred to integrate into the Aramean culture, which was the dominant culture of his time. He considered it most effective to influence the peoples of the world from within. It's important to note that this point of view, Galut Lishma, Exile with a Purpose, was later championed by Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who had lived in 19th century Germany and argued that the calling of the Jewish people was to live among the enlightened nations and to influence them from within. We can also see this perspective alive and well today amongst many Jewish leaders in the United States. But Nahor didn't manage to survive as a Hebrew. In his family's self-identification as Arameans, we see a very classic Jewish temptation to forget Hebrew uniqueness and become quote-unquote normal people by assimilating into dominant host cultures. It's also important to note that this phenomenon shouldn't be limited to Jews living outside their own country. In today's more globalized world, we even see a significant number of Israelis desiring to throw off their Jewish uniqueness and become normal people or a normal country by assimilating into the dominant global culture. 
In any event, we can say to a certain extent that Rivka brought this aspect of Aramean identity into Yitzchak's family. This is because the cosmopolitan side of Hebrew identity is crucial for our mission and must have its place in comprising Israel's national makeup. It's of course problematic when this cosmopolitan feature of our identity becomes too dominant, as we can see from many recent and contemporary examples. But it's important that this be present as part of our larger holistic identity. Because narrow nationalism on its own wouldn't really fit the Jewish people or serve our universalist mission, we see that both Yitzchak and Yaakov took wives from the house of Nahor, so that in establishing the nation of Israel, the specifically Hebrew component of our identity would be most dominant, but a measure of cosmopolitanism would also be present in our national roots to pull us towards engagement with the outside world. In addition to bringing an element of cosmopolitanism into Israel's national roots, Rivka also brought the power of Chesed to balance Yitzchak's gvura. When Eliezer was dispatched to find a wife for Yitzchak, he specifically sought out a girl of immense chesed, because that was exactly the kind of Ezer Kenegdo, assisting counterweight, that Yitzchak required. Israel's patriarchs married women who were very much their opposites in personal attributes and the sfirot they expressed, in order to create a healthy counterbalance in the Hebrew nation's roots. Avraham was chesed, Sarah was gevura. Yitzchak was gevura, so his wife needed to be chesed. When Eliezer, a grown man, approached Rivka at the well in Haran and asked her for water, she could have easily assumed he was trying to take advantage of her. It would have been completely appropriate for her to tell him to get his own water. But her generous response to not only give Eliezer water, but also to fetch water for all of his camels indicates that she likely assumed that if he was asking her for water, then there must have been some reason why he couldn't get it himself. The way in which Rivka processed the situation displayed her incredible attribute of chesed. There are two ways we can look at Rivka's partnership with Yitzchak. One way would be to see the relationship as the ideal Jewish marriage. Unlike Avraham and Yaakov, Yitzchak had only one wife. We see explicitly that he brought her into his tent and loved her. The Torah even tells us that they were seen displaying some kind of public affection in Gerar, to the point that the Philistine king, upon witnessing their behavior, realized that they were married. And even when Yitzchak was preparing to bless Esav as his successor, Rivka didn't confront her husband or threaten his honor. She simply took matters into her own hands and did what she knew to be right. But from another perspective, we can look at Rivka's need to go behind Yitzchak's back as revealing a lack of healthy communication between them. In fact, the Torah doesn't really show us much dialogue between Yitzchak and Rivka. When they first met, we see that Bereshit 24 verse 64 states, Vatisa Rivka et Enea vatera et Yitzchak vatipol me'alagamal. And Rivka raised her eyes and saw Yitzchak and she fell from the camel. Rivka appears to have fallen off of her camel when she saw Yitzchak for the first time. This might have been due to the shock of his appearance. We already learned that Yitzchak's nefesh, his outer soul, never came back from the Akedah, and that he essentially became a man of the world to come, acting as a living, breathing person fully involved in the day-to-day -day realities of this world. 
This might have caused him to display a powerful spiritual charisma shining through his face and body that took Rivka by surprise when she first saw him. And despite the fact that Yitzchak was fully able to engage in this world successfully, it also might have made regular communication with him difficult. Yitzchak was likely a hard man to have a relationship with. Exemplifying the trait of Gvura, Yitzchak's nature was to set boundaries and seek justice and preserve and transmit his father's teachings to the next generation. He was a highly successful farmer, a profession avoided by the other patriarchs but later central to the nation following his conquest of the land. He was a man of vision and ideals, but might have been challenged when it came to interpersonal relationships. There might have been times when this even worked to his advantage. Unlike his father Avraham, Yitzchak had a hard time dealing with the Plishtim, with the Philistines. They didn't respect him as they respected his father. Certainly not when he lived among them. They resented the wealth he acquired and viewed his success as coming at their expense. In many ways, we can see Yitzchak's experiences in Philistine territory as foreshadowing later Jewish experiences in exile. But when Yitzchak finally moved away to Beersheva, on the border of Philistine territory, he became recognized and respected as a spiritual leader. Suddenly, Avimelech, the king of the Philistines, wanted to make peace and forge an alliance with Yitzchak. As we said, Avot siman lebanim, the deeds of the fathers are a sign for the children. When Jews tried to live amongst Gentile nations, it's very hard for us to achieve success without inviting jealousy or hatred. Part of it might also be that it's near impossible for us to be our true selves when living in foreign lands away from our natural habitat. But when Jews return to our land and are able to succeed as our true selves, the possibility exists for other nations to recognize what we are and desire a healthy connection with us. In any case, after marrying Yitzchak, it took Rivka 20 years to become pregnant. But when she finally did, she discovered that she was carrying twins. Whenever she'd pass a house of idol worship, one of the twins would agitate to escape her womb, and whenever she passed the yeshiva of Shem and Ever, the other would do the same. She didn't tell her husband or father-in-law about this, but according to our sages, she went to inquire of Shem and Ever, and in response, Rivka received an important prophecy that spoke about her unborn twins as two mutually hostile civilizations whose values would be in direct conflict for most of history. Our sages identify Esav with the civilization that first gained dominance as the Roman Empire, conquered Europe through Christianity, and then evolved into the modern West. Our sages further teach that the civilizations of Esav and Yaakov cannot be simultaneously dominant on the world stage. They're constantly subordinating one another, and when either rises, the other must fall. History has shown us that not only the nations, but also their cultures and values, have perpetually been in conflict. The prophecy Rivka received guaranteed that the younger twin will eventually triumph. The story of Esav and Yaakov growing up is complicated. Until the age of 15, when their grandfather Avraham left our world, they both appeared to be loyal to their family's teachings and mission. Esav was clearly the leader of the two. But following the loss of Avraham, their paths began to separate. The differences between Esav and Yaakov came from the duality of their parents Yitzchak and Rivka. Yitzchak was a man of Gvura, 
who advanced in life by constantly refining this attribute and subordinating it to chesed. Just as Avraham had to separate between pure and impure chesed, so did Yitzchak have to separate between pure and impure kuvura. Rivka came from a family of Hebrews who had assimilated into Aram, and constantly carried within herself a conflict between her Hebrew and Aramean identities. The former was expressed through her incredible chesed, while the latter manifested as a pull towards cosmopolitanism and as a natural aversion to what she saw as excessively narrow tribalism. The inherent qualities of Yitzchak and Rivka could be combined in different ways. One way would be Yitzchak's purified gvura in conjunction with Rivka's chesed. This combination led to Yaakov representing the Svira of Tiferet. But Yitzchak's impure gvura combined with Rivka's Aramean cosmopolitanism, produced Esav. The excessive Gvura would later be expressed in the Roman Empire's penchant for violence and cruelty in the name of order, which will ultimately seek balance through the adoption of Christianity, a religion of Chesed. Combined with the Aramean component inherited from his mother, Esav's impure Gvura would ultimately be driven towards an imperialist universalism that demands human uniformity. As the twins were growing up, Yitzchak felt spiritually and psychologically closer to Esav, while Rivka favored Yaakov. Yitzchak actually understood the birth of twins to mean the Hebrew nation would consist of two main tribes, and it was his hope that Esav and Yaakov would form Israel together, and take on roles similar to the tribes of Ephraim and Levi. Esav would be the economic, political, and military leader, while Yaakov would be the spiritual leader. And at least until the age of 15, this seemed to find expression in how the twins interacted. Esav would impressively hunt and work the land, while Yaakov would stay home to study and prepare food for the family. But a major difference between the two could actually be found in the fact that Esav was a static personality. Although he might have seemed far more impressive as a young man, he had already reached his potential for growth. Yaakov, on the other hand, spent his entire life advancing towards perfection. His potential was therefore significantly greater than Esav's. We can see this difference between Esav's completeness and Yaakov's dynamism expressed in the civilizations each brother produced. European philosophy, for example, tends to strive for all concepts and ideas to be well-defined, complete, and neatly organized. But Hebrew spiritual constructions, as seen in both the Talmud and the Kabbalistic literature, tend to always be unfinished and require further development. There's a general direction but then the initial concepts of any given construction are determined and refined through the process of its further engagement. It tends to be a Jewish characteristic to be perpetually on the move, constantly smashing social norms and established beliefs as we progress. Our worldview isn't static, but dynamic, which actually makes dialectical materialism far more Jewish than it is Western. In any case, for the first 15 years of their lives, Esav was the clear leader, the star of the family, and Yaakov was in a subordinate role. But Avraham's death shook the family structure to its core, and in doing so made it possible to change the entire hierarchy. Esav, whose nature was Gvura, 
had a very all-or-nothing attitude when it came to Emunah, and therefore had trouble understanding how the Creator could take Avraham from the world. He experienced a crisis of faith and spiritual exhaustion. Yaakov, on the other hand, decided to step up at this critical juncture and take responsibility for the family's future. He saw in Esav's sudden weakness a danger to the Hebrew mission and decided that his brother needed to be replaced. The agreement to trade some red lentil stew in exchange for Esav's birthright, his position of leadership, was not Yaakov taking advantage of his brother, as is commonly understood in the West, but actually assuming responsibility for the family and taking his first step towards leadership. Whoever held the birthright would be responsible for the direction the family would take as it transformed into a nation. It was also associated with serving Hashem, as practiced by the spiritual leader of the Hebrew family. As a result of his personal crisis, Esav was no longer interested in that role. But because Yitzchak was still alive and head of the family, Yaakov demanded an oath that the leadership position would be his once Yitzchak left the world. From the moment he traded the lentil stew for the birthright, Yaakov began a gradual transformation that saw him slowly acquiring some of Esav's characteristics and integrating them with his own. This process would be completed many years later when he'd received the name Yisrael after fighting Esav's malach. When the time came for Yitzchak to bless his sons, he had planned to bestow the primary bracha onto Esav. But Rivka intervened and forced Yaakov to disguise himself as his brother and receive the bracha. We've already seen that when it comes to the issue of toldot, the successive generations and determining the Hebrew nation's roots and lineage, the matriarchs had stronger prophecy than the patriarchs. In any event, the son that Yitzchak blessed was a mysterious hybrid of the twins. Yitzchak says in Bereshit 27 verse 22 that Hakol kol Yaakov Esav. The voice is the voice of Yaakov, yet the hands are the hands of Esav. Rav Kook teaches that this verse is actually part of the bracha itself, that Yaakov's children would be able to don the hands of Esav when necessary, yet be able to remain internally Yaakov.